0: If you've dreamed of finding the good life by settling in Tuscany, you certainly aren't alone. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. It seems that lots of Americans fantasize about living in the Italian countryside, even if that dream home needs a lot of restoration work before you can finally move in and cook up some pasta. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll meet another author and bon vivant who settled in Italy... The pride in Tuscany really comes from doing things. Ferenc Maté is a Hungarian-Canadian-American who restored a 13th-century friary in Tuscany, planted a vineyard, and now produces award-winning wine. He'll share his recipe for wringing more joy out of everyday life wherever you are. And after her tango lessons instilled in her a new sense of self-confidence, Camille Cusimano packed up for Argentina. She joins us later in the hour to tell us how the tango can turn your life around if you let it. Fantasies do come true from tango to Tuscany. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's always interesting to talk to someone who's planted new roots in a new country and is passionate about the results, especially when that someone is Ferenc Maté. He's an accomplished photographer and sailing enthusiast, and he's authored several books about sailboats. His latest book, however, describes his move to Tuscany, where he turned a 13th-century friary into his dream house planted acres of vineyards out back and now produces some of the best wine in Italy under the Matte label with the help of his son and wife. A Hungarian-Canadian-American who escaped communist rule, he's lived in Austria, Vancouver, New York, Rome, and Paris. And now, for the past 20 years, Ferenc has been living in rural Tuscany. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how we can all make a Tuscan lifestyle our own, wherever we call home. Ferenc, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little about what your home's like.
1: Well, we live on uh, 60 acres of uh, Tuscan, I guess you'd call it Wonderland, looking off west and you see about 12 layers of hills before you see the sunset and the sea. <laughs> uh, it's a 13th century friary that we bought. I had this sort of Pygmalion complex of taking a ruin and rebuilding it. You know? And I looked for five years before I found this place, and it's rambling with wings and towers and a creek in front of it. And we actually bought this place and spent two years of absolute hell, rebuilding it. But it was enjoyable, hell. It was, every day was kind of like Christmas because you did something wonderful and you looked at it and said, my God, look at that stone. Oh, look at that new window, the door, that, that beam. And then, um, fortunately or unfortunately, Angelo Gaia, who's Italy's best winemaker, moved in next door to us. We're at Montalcino, which is the, probably the most famous wine-growing area of Italy. And when he moved in, we thought, well, you know, it's like, having the Pope next door to you and converting to Islam. So we actually thought we might as well plant some vineyards. And uh, now we have 15 acres of vineyards and uh, 42,000 bottles of wine to make and sell every year. And it's actually, I wrote another book called The Vineyard in Tuscany, and I was going to subtitle it Our Own Hell in Paradise. But I know it's really wonderful, <laughs> now that you ask about the lifestyle. It's, it's good because it goes with writing. You can actually be outside all day and work in the vineyards or the woods and then go inside and write or pretend to write you know, close the door and keep your machine going
0: Your experience is you're not just passing through as a tourist as millions of people do in that part of Italy you are actually dealing with the reality of life getting a fixer-upper and and redoing it and dealing with the contractors and the plumbers and the electricians and the tempo of life Uh, there are some frustrations with the what is the sweetness of doing nothing what is that (laughs) the dolce far niente
1: you have to learn that there is no such thing as making a phone call to get anyone to do anything okay there's such a thing as making 15 phone calls about the same subject to the same person but you get relaxed into it you know if you have to do something by Christmas you call it Easter and you say listen I have an urgency you know I have a leak it has to be fixed right now (laughs) knowing that you don't really have that and you have 8 months to do it but it'll probably get done by in 8 months
0: so this is a radical new approach to life and it's not working with a split-second timer, that's for sure. In your book, you write, you are hoping to awaken the Tuscan in all of us. What is the Tuscan in all of us?
1: Oh, Rick, I think really that people who come to Tuscany, almost everyone says or even reads the book, they say, oh, you're living my dream. And I think it's basically we have, all of us have this need to live close to each other in a community where everybody knows us, to live really close to nature, like Emerson said, but also to to feel that what you're doing is actually contributing to your own life. Okay, so A lot of things in Tuscany you do, but with your own hands. You actually plant your vegetable garden. You go hunt for mushrooms. You get your own firewood. You look after your own house. Things that, that you get to do in America on a weekend only. You know. And mm-hmm. uh, I was th- telling a friend yesterday that it's such an important part to participate in your own life. Like When I get something out of the garden that I planted, or I make a fire out of wood that I gathered... But I'm sitting there eating that meal with, with that, that fire going and the food that I've planted and I've spent time cooking, the taste of that food is psychologically such a huge thing because you've done all this thing to get it, you know. You don't think about it obviously, but it's a it's in the back of your mind. It's a huge event. So we have two big meals a day, and and it's it's almost like life is a celebration. I'm not, not trying to be no, but it's a harvest. Guide people into this, but it really, really is. It's just it's it's such a wonderful life, you know. It's a harvest of your beautiful work.
0: Yeah. When I think about that, I just had sort of a, a flashback to I think the most beautiful meal I've ever had anywhere in Europe, and it was on the farm of a woman named Signora Gori. It's Niagara in somewhere in Tuscany. We sat down in this elegant living room surrounded by pictures of their ancestors who had lived on that farm for generations and generations. Mm. And sitting and at this simple table, we had the fruit of their labor. We had the sausage, the cheese, the wine, the bread, the fruit, nothing fancy, beautiful olive oil, Everything right there. Earlier in that day, I had walked through her farm with Signora Gori and she picked up the lambs, you know, and she she knew the animals from where her, her cheese came. We could hear the squealing of the of the pigs being slaughtered, and she said, "That's our little Beirut." And we'd go up there, and we'd see all <laughs> the <laughs> and we'd see the slaughterhouse, uh, and we would be surrounded. Too, huh? <laughs> it was just great. And we sat down with her family. There was three generations there, and you know, I can picture people grabbing a bottle of wine like you might, with the, your family label on that bottle and pouring that into the glass of somebody who traveled from halfway around the world to share that with you. And there's just some sort of a, a pricelessness about that that you just don't get at the mall.
1: You know, it's it's really amazing. We went not, we had an, I had an assistant to there a couple of years ago and we went out to dinner or lunch, and we took our own wine, of course, because we make one of the best wines in the world, so it's <laughs> natural to do that. And you can do that in Italy. They let you take your wine if you're a grower. Hmm. Um, and she said... And you know she's not a she's the most unromantic person I know my, in my life. Very straightforward, great editor and assistant. She says to me, "You know, it's like bringing the soul of the house with you, and it, the stuff that you create by yourself, it really is like like it has a soul to it that, that you know store bought stuff doesn't have." And Rick, another thing, um, looking at you, you get such a calm and a self confidence when you grow your own stuff, or you fix your own house, or you know how to do these things. You know, it's it's a it's a basic thing. The, the anxiety of not being able to fix things or knowing how things are put together is gone. You know, you have this, and I'm not talking about this sort of um, uh, self-sufficiency that, you know, people go in the woods and and dig their own cake kind of thing. I'm talking about sort of a fundamental participation in your own life.
0: Yeah. You mentioned when you grow your own wine or make your own wine, the restaurateurs allow you to take your bottle to dinner with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's just—it's just, it's just it's, unreasonable to ask you to uh, abandon your, your, the, the <laughs> fruit of your vine, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, That's beautiful as, as you know in Tuscany, almost almost every restaurant is uh, family owned, and so you get to know people, and usually the owner serves on you, and of course mm-hmm. you start chatting about the wine. So the whole dinner becomes a social event beyond the table. It involves other people at the other tables or mm-hmm. or the people who own the restaurant. And this is this whole community thing that is so reassuring, you know, knowing your baker, knowing your butcher and and you walk in and, and they start arguing with you about no you don't want that meat because you're making soup, you idiot. How can you want it? you want this kind of meat? You want it. And, and no, it's not enough for three people. So you ask for you want for five half a kilo and they say, No, you don't want half a kilo. You want you want three quarters of a kilo or you it's too much. No and, and it's wonderful. It's a, it makes you feel like you actually are part of the world, you know, instead so of the sort of anonymous thing where you check out through the checkout counter and nobody knows who the hell you are or cares. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel
0: with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté, and Ferenc Maté is a Hungarian who spent half his life in America and then has spent the last 20 years in Tuscany, and we're talking about lessons you can learn from this in order to live better. His new book, The Wisdom of Tuscany, is filled with wisdom that Ferenc has learned from the actual opportunity to become a Tuscan. Ferenc, without getting too uh, glorious about this, it just seems like we're finding a way to wring more joy and success out of life without having to make more money. And here in the United States, in these, quote, tough economic times, people are looking, we're in crisis to live better with less anxiety and, and, and so on, and, and maybe we're completely barking up the wrong tree here because uh, you go to Tuscany and you, you get out of this crisis by getting more close to your community, more close to the earth, more close to what really is the meaning of life.
1: Well, I think, ironically enough, the crisis is pushing us back into such wonderful stuff. You know, uh, I've heard that people actually have clothing exchange evenings and stuff where they get together and, and people yeah. who don't...
0: people get in Iceland. Get I- Iceland's had the worst economic crisis, and all of a sudden they're hanging out in their hot tubs more, getting to know their neighbors. Isn't that great? And saying, There's a <laughs> silver lining to this, quote, crisis. Thank God for they're... this crisis, you know.
1: I don't think it's anything, anything better, you know, and... Yeah. and You know, people actually get together at bars and talk more about the crisis. At least they they participate in each other's agonies. What a concept. You know, I really think, honestly, Ricky, without trying, without trying to better the world, either economically or or socially or even environmentally, this basic life that the Tuscans lead contributes to that unconsciously. You know, if you concentrate on what really makes what, what makes you happy, okay? I mean, I'm not talking about starving yourself to death or ma- no. growing particular foods or yeah, anything. I'm talking about hardship. what makes all. you happiest. Makes, I'm happiest eating, drinking my wine, laughing my guts out with my family at the table, having friends over. That is the joy of life. So you, you know, can being, do that or you can go into debt. You know, it's just a, it's exactly, your choice. It's your choice. Exactly. And, and what, the pleasure that comes out of redoing your own house. I mean, I cannot tell you, I mean, I knew nothing about stone building. You know, I, I've built a house in Vancouver out of 2 by 4s in Gyprock. I mean, right. stone to me, you know, like tombstones are the only thing I knew. But you learn, and, and the, and the stonemasons every day, 50 times, Marty, how do we do this? Because I wanted to do a restoration that was really um, a museum kind of restoration. You know, right. you want to use old beams and old tiles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, your brain is constantly working, you know, and and, and you feel absolutely rejuvenated. Every, every day is like, like a celebration. Ah, you know, when you, when you're you're when steep you're, on the when learning you, when curve. You do. Yeah. It's, I mean, compared to the average job where you basically learn everything you're doing the first five or six days and you continue doing that for the rest of your life, my God. That's it's, deadening. The I would imagine. customs really imagined. have, you know, and you get the results. You get olive oil that people kill for here, wine that you kill for here, food. I mean, the, the food that comes out of your garden or your, your own chickens, I mean, pfft, incomparable. Ferentz, you
0: know. in your book you put quite a bit of importance on this phrase, la vita quotidiana. What does that mean and why is that important?
1: That's it. Just what we're talking about is daily life. You know, you get up and you look after your place and you, your family is constantly in, or your friends are constantly in touch with you because you know everyone in a town. So that's, Most, it. that's the essence of It's mostly multi-generational Tuscany. houses in Tuscany. You know, you have three, right. four generations. And the mix of that, Rick, I mean, having... Not just mercenary stuff like instant babysitters available and you know grandmothers are cooking. Imagine what it does for kids. First of all, you have you have someone there all the time. You know, I mean, you get coddled to death. Why why, why are you telling them so calm and confident and happy? Because they're loved to death. And vice versa, you have you have the older people feeling it's so important. I mean, we have the great grandmother next door who basically runs the olive harvest. You know, mm. and she goes up on the trees and climbs and picks the olives and tells you what to do and and screams at you if you drop an olive and leave it there on the ground because it's <laughs> worth so much, you know. I mean, these people are just totally alive and totally participating in, in society, and, and that, that's the vita quotidiana. just go looking after your own bits and pieces and, and, and living well. I'm speaking with
0: Ferenc Maté. We're talking about Lessons from Tuscany about good living, his book, The Wisdom of Tuscany. Our phone number is 877 We'll take your calls with Ferenc about Lessons from Tuscany in a moment.
2: You've got
3: something I want I can hear my heart
0: fairly shout It keeps telling
3: me my moment is near That my rainbow's end is waiting right here
0: Ernst Maté is a lesson in transforming yourself. Born in communist Hungary, he escaped to Vancouver, Canada, at age 11. He's also lived in the U.S., the Bahamas, and Europe. For the last 20 years, he's made a home out of a restored 13th-century friary in Montalcino, Tuscany. His book about it is called The Wisdom of Tuscany, Simplicity, Security, and the Good Life. Your chance to chat with Ference is coming up shortly on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Ference, when we talk about Tuscany, the root of that is the Etruscan civilization. Do you find there's any sort of Etruscan heritage that's living on today, even though they're 2,500 years ago, compared to the Roman Empire and so on?
1: Oh, absolutely, Rick. Um, Strangely enough, I'm excavating an Etruscan city on our property that covers two hills. I found a temple in the palace and actually found the arena. Yeah, You found a totally an different Etruscan concept of temple a temple in your backyard. Shh, Don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I can't imagine. He if I you. dig down
0: two feet, I find nothing but dirt <laughs> where I live.
1: Okay, this, this is the only Etruscan city that actually exists almost in Tuscany because all the other ones have been built over. Even like Orvieto, yeah. Perugia, sure. Arezzo are built in Etruscan towns but this has been for- forgotten in the woods because the, we have like jungly woods in Machia Mediterranean. And one day I found, that the, or my wife said, look at this, this is actually a wall. And I said, yeah, right, <laughs> uh-huh, it's probably a sheep thing, no? So we go on and on and, you learn about little by little that, you know, a temple is twenty million meters by 17 in uh, Etruscan times. And so we find a temple, 21 by 17. And you think, oh, my God. So, so we're, I'm trying to map this place actually right now, so don't tell anybody. Okay, I want just, just between <laughs> you and me. But when you think yeah, right. it, But
0: we're we're celebrating this good <laughs> life in Tuscany. And is it just a coincidence that you're sitting on the ruins of Etruscan civilization, or do they inspire this in their way? Because my understanding of the Etruscans is, for them, life was a banquet and their god was an easygoing really was, kind yeah. of Mother earth
1: god and everything was cool they were not conquerors. You know, they, they were very happy living where they were and uh, they were not a Roman. You know, this is why there aren't many ruins. They weren't into giant construction except for their necropolis which was dug into the hillsides. Yeah. So, but we know about Etruscans mostly comes from, from paintings in there. Uh, yeah, it was a completely different concept from the Romans. It was living life well. Well, eat, drink and be merry. I bet that was, they were just quoting some Yeah, and you know, the, the slaves were actually treated and, and, this, and they have strange name for slaves. It was like a, a member of the family almost right. and it was Yes, somebody told somebody what to do, but, but the input and and how they dressed and where they lived was actually comparable to where, where the master lived. Yeah, it's a completely different life. It, it was based on sharing and respect and living well and not on, you know, 2 or 3% of the population getting rich and the other uh, the ones crawling around the dirt like the Romans. So when you're
0: using Tuscan lifestyles as inspiration for fast-track uh, American lifestyles, to mellow out and, and slow down and smell the roses. Is that uniquely Tuscan or is that Italian in general? How does Tuscany differ from Rick, the I swear
1: to God it's, it's basically human. You know, I think I think America, I remember when I was a kid in Canada, uh we had that same lifestyle. You know, we had we had a front porch where you sat around and everybody in the neighborhood gathered there and and we had a, a vegetable garden. Everybody the neighbor shares their vegetables because things ripen, they ripen at once. You know, we played crummy baseball with one crummy bat and and a couple of gloves in a a dirt field in the back. We weren't into gear and stuff. You're talking about
0: the good old days before the intensity of our life kicked in. And and today, in this modern, high-strung global age, in Italy, in Tuscany, you still have two very important institutions, the piazza and the passeggiata. Tell us about the piazza and the passeggiata in Tuscan culture
1: believe it or not a passeggiata still exists and it's a thing that you do every night or every evening everyone sort of drops whatever they're doing and uh, they take a walk in their little town and you've already seen everybody in the town anyway you know, because you talk to them in the butcher shop and the post office so it's, you're not seeing anybody new but it's a different it's a more formal kind of thing and you salute whoever you haven't seen and crack a couple of jokes and pass the gossip around and it's it's a huge social event, and it, it really binds the community together. And the piazza is where, where most of the good cafes are and and where the market usually is. And it's again, it's you go there, not because you're lacking a supermarket. We do have a, a very small one of that. But uh, you go there to encounter some neighbors you might have missed. There's a, an interesting saying in Tuscany, and you know how close the Tuscans are in family. Um, I mean, family's down on your throat constantly, weekends and uh, the ones that aren't living with you. But there's a saying that a good neighbor is worth 10 members of your family. And it's really true that the neighbors are loved and respected and, and you share because you're often dependent on them. And, you know, we have no qualms at all going to our neighbors and then borrowing a tractor or borrowing a forklift. And, and they have no qualms at all coming to us and say, uh, you know, we're out of carrots. Can you give me a bushel of carrots or something? whatever, you know? And, and it's such a comforting thing to know that. It's not not just... Cute or fun,
0: so being interdependent is sort of celebrated. That's part of the fabric of your community.
1: exactly the human the human condition is celebrated, and 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 it's not like you you actually say okay I'm going to live without television and live without this all these comforts. You don't need them. You know when you have tons of friends and you have your family there and you have your neighbors that you interact with and you you're busy around your own house. You don't need all this accoutrements. You don't need to shop and have fourteen thousand of this and twelve television sets and eight cars and blah blah blah. You know. Not that people are poor. Don't misunderstand no, they've me. Got people TVs. are rich as hell. You know? they,
0: they've got TVs, but they're just not uh, slaves to the TVs, I guess. You've got this passeggiata where you go out and you, you meet your neighbors. You've got this need to go to the market every morning, not because you don't want to have a big freezer in your garage, but because you'd like to connect with your community. you got the piazza, which is the neighborhood living room. Does this small-town, stable society where people are less mobile and so on, does it, does the fact that everybody knows everybody kind of enforce a community decency? Does it sort of a constrain people?
1: There's there's no crime. I mean, you know, we keep uh, our key in, uh, in at the house where God meant it to be in the lock. You know, because <laughs> otherwise you lose it. You know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and you, put, I heard, you leave the key in the door where God <laughs> meant it to be. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, I've heard that you know there are surveys done, and and most oh. uh, family homicides begin with the shout, "Where's the goddamn key?" You know, so <laughs> uh, you you avoid these kind of things. You know. Um, the car keys are are sitting, you know, not in the car ignition, but it's right there by the stick shift because it's an easy place to find. You know, um, everyone knows everybody, and 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 people are looked after. Of course, there's a huge social structure. There's isn't, there isn't, you know massive poverty anywhere. Right. There's there's care. There's all that stuff. That you don't you never feel really poor. But and there's a, there there's
0: a a safety net when you have a tight knit community that you wouldn't have somebody just desperate on the street. There's one
1: story in a book about how unspoken. You know, one family ran into hard times. And the church took a, without any kind of fanfare, it took a collection up and a priest walked home with a kid and one of the children one day. And uh, when well, nobody was looking past her an envelope and said, you know, make sure you give it to your father when nobody's in the room so that mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't feel ashamed. You know, wow. and it, yeah, it yeah, exists, you know, and we live in a country, obviously. The doctor actually comes to your house when you have a problem. And you know how reassuring that is not to have him come, but just to think that he can come when you need him. Uh Candace had, because Candace is Candace, and she had a flu, and she still insisted on going sailing one day. And so she got bronchial, whatever you get, pneumonia. And she had to have injections three times a day. And a neighbor who who knew how to do that because, you know, she has a rabbit that she had to inject once in a while, walked a quarter mile three times a day without, you know, saying, oh, this is I'm doing such a great favor. And it was a natural thing to do. And she gave Candace a shot in the butt because I didn't have the heart to stab her.
0: Yeah, people looking out for each other. I'm Rick Steves. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ference Maté. His book is called The Wisdom of Tuscany. Ference, I gotta say, you're not the first person to write about Tuscany, that's for sure. There's a lot <laughs> of expats <laughs> that have moved in. And, you know, you guys all have uh, discovered in an isolated way your own magic of Tuscany and its uniform. You're all enthusiastic about the same thing. And when I think about it, Nowhere else in Europe do people move in and write books about how this lifestyle and this salt-of-the-earth sort of community has inspired them to, to write about that and, and help people wake up to find out what really is meaningful in life. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Noble is on the line in Lummy Island, Washington. Noble, thanks for your call. Hi there. It's nice to talk to both of you guys.
1: Yeah, do you have some comments for parents? Hi, Noble. I think I emailed you back and forth a few times, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah, you remember. Um, I wanted Not to tell see
1: you now yet. Getting there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, my wife and I had a, a home birth on Christmas Day, and we celebrated with a bottle of mate wine that I'd been saving for about a year.
1: Hmm. So, wow. No, no, that is an, a pleasure that I can't even imagine how good that makes me feel, seriously. Those are events that, you know, somebody celebrates something so spectacular with a bottle of wine makes you absolutely humble and thrilled to be alive, you know?
0: I, I thought you'd like that story. Um, anyway, y- your book, A Vineyard in Tuscany, inspired my wife and I to buy some land, and we're going to start working it. And I want to know what is the most important lesson you've learned? Um, teaching yourself to work the
1: land. You know, interesting uh, to enjoy every step. A friend of mine taught this to me who had an olive grove uh, to work and he started hoeing like a madman and the old guy who had been hoeing olives for 50 years was next to him. He said, uh, you better slow down because after this tree, there's another tree and after that tree, there's another acre and after that goes on and on. And so you better enjoy every moment of your life. And I think that's what it is. If, if, If you enjoy every step you will be the happiest man on earth, you know? That's great. That means you have, have to enjoy weeding and digging dirt and, <laughs> and hauling it's fertilizer. It's like the but journey you
0: know. is the destination. I mean, isn't that the philosophy?
1: Absolutely, Rick. Right. That's absolutely right. the truest words ever spoken.
0: All right. Noble, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Thanks to you guys. What a gratifying thing, uh, Ferenc, to, to, can make, you imagine? to make fine Jeez. wine and then somebody has a home birth on the other side of the planet oh. and they crack <laughs> and open your the, wine to well, celebrate it. I love that it. Is,
1: that is, okay, that's it. I can die okay. happy now. Thanks.
0: Right. Well, let's see if we can top that. <laughs> Terry's on the, on the oh. phone in Waconia, Minnesota. Terry, thanks for your call.
2: Hi, Rick. I wanted to tell you how much my husband and I enjoy watching your show together. And, Ferenc, um, your book of in, in Tuscany um, also inspired us we were newlyweds when we started reading it, and and we read the book to each other um, for several months. And um, we wow. had decided to plant a hundred vines and see what happens. Well, your book encouraged us to go further, and now we have um, three thousand plants in a vineyard, and we're planning to open our winery this year. So it's um, wow. It, the book was so funny because we related so much to you and your wife in every step of the way. But one night, my husband jumps up in the middle of the night and says, I planted my vines the wrong way. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, <laughs> so, upside down?
2: What? <laughs> he, well, he was east and west, so we ripped them out and put them north and south. But the reason why I'm calling today is um, I got so involved with the, the industry here. In, um, we're in the Midwest in Minnesota. And now I'm a chairperson for the conference, and I'm going to be organizing a tour for our Midwest grape growers. And um, I'd like them to experience what I experienced when I was in Europe and um, seeing the vineyards in Tuscany. And I'd just like some suggestions about where I might like to take them and also find out if you would be interested in ever visiting Minnesota.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'd love to come. Uh, to give you the best idea, I think if you take a large tour or a tour in a large winery like Banfi or uh, Frescobaldi, you really get a good understanding of the steps of the large-scale function. But I think you should really go to small wineries as well. To, uh, well, Gaia doesn't let you in. But you come to our house and as long, okay. as, long as it lasts, 500 of you. <laughs> no, there's there's <laughs>
2: probably about 30. But do call ahead. We don't,
1: have, we don't have tours, but uh, mm-hmm. Candace does... If you call ahead a couple of days, you know, she certainly accommodates everybody. So I think it's interesting to compare a large winery with a small one and Mm -hmm. and, and how things function and how you can do it hands-on, you know.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the industry here is starting to grow because the technology for grapes has improved so much for cold climates. So um, Mm. we're working very closely with the University of Minnesota. And um, California, everything's already been done. This is new territory, so we're very excited about it and... um,
1: that's pretty brave um, just, of you. Congratulations.
2: Thank you very much. And, <laughs> so do um, come
1: and visit, but call or email in advance and we'd be happy to have you. Terry, okay, good luck. thank you so much. Good luck with your tour. Thanks writing. for writing.
2: We really enjoy. You're a great, great writer. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks very much.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté, his new book, The Wisdom of Tuscany. Marika from Windsor, Colorado, emailed us, and Marika writes is the lifestyle you have right now similar to the one you had in Hungary when you were growing up? <laughs> I'm Hungarian, no. and I miss what uh-huh. I left behind when I escaped during the '56 revolution at 18. So this is an interesting issue, Ferenc. I mean, of course, the communism was, was a drag, and the economy didn't work, and the ideology had some fundamental problems, but there were some slow down and smell the roses and family values aspects of communism in eastern europe that uh frantic capitalism in western europe doesn't quite uh, do as well i think what is your take on that
1: well ironically well i lived in a one room flat with my grandparents uh, with cold water and a bathroom down the hall to share, you know share. this was in budapest and right. uh, i left when I was 11 so, I, there really isn't much to compare with living in a oh. small castle. A 70, wow, what a tins, 70, yeah. 70 acres in Tuscany. Uh, but socially, yeah, um, I think because there was nowhere to go um, economically in Hungary. You know, you sort of had a job that you worked at and you stole whatever you could on the side because it was the state. So, if it was yours, you might as well take it home right. no matter what it was, whether it was sausages or a chair oh, or, a, yeah. you know, a turbine that you could know, barely fit into your room. Um, but I think there was this huge human contact again, because you didn 't have money. all you had was your neighbors, and you everybody walked and window shop because you couldn 't afford to buy anything, so it was like like the passaggiata in Italy, huh. and neighbors and friends were everything you know that 's right. the only entertainment you had you know all so right. I guess in that, that sense yeah i i, I don 't miss it because no. we have that in Tuscany, and we have the castle to boot you know so
0: <laughs> but Tuscany has a little bit more of the um the soft edges of of,
1: uh, of Euro-socialism
0: uh, compared to some uh, Darwinistic kind of capitalistic lifestyle.
1: Very much so. And and Mm. there's, you know, the pride in Tuscany really comes from doing things. Um, The craftsmanship is so vital and exists. You know, carpentry cabinetry, all that stuff is made by either individuals or by mm. tiny, tiny um, yeah. groups of three or four people. And an interesting thing, one of our favorite restaurants, the Maruchetto Fish Place um, down, uh, down down the road, uh, I asked uh, Carmin, who's the, the chef and, and the father and runs the place, totally withdrawn, very quiet guy, but, but he worked in France on a boat, on a barge one time and so he learned how to make fantastic French pastry. He, he works 20 hours a day. He loves it. But he's not a social guy. He always sort of withdrawn back in the kitchen. And I say, Why why do you make all these fantastic foods? And he makes fabulous desserts constantly. He says, I love to see people happy. You know, and uh, I think you know, the people who came to our house and worked in our house, they put their hearts and soul into everything. What they were going to gain financially didn't matter. We have people coming back ten years later, fixing for no charge. A door that might have warped or done something, you know. And
0: you know, this is very interesting point you're making because, as a traveler, a budget traveler, you think of Italy and you think of taxis in Rome ripping you off because you're a tourist. But every expat I've talked to who's bought a fixer-upper in Italy and has worked with the local artisans and craftspeople and plumbers and, and electricians has made friends out of the experience, and they find it. It really is these people care and they're, they've got a lot of ethics and, and they're part of the community.
1: Yeah, Rick. I think most craftsmen care more than your friends care. I mean, it's it's, it's right. amazing. It's you know, I, I I had guys come in and they they build this huge metal window frame for an archway because mm-hmm. downstairs were all stable, so you had to put a window in it, and they actually made a little wooden pl- or a huge wooden pattern, and then they come back in with a metal piece, and there was a gap because the arch wasn't perfect, it was built 700 years ago, so there was a little bit of a gap there. And I thought, well, okay, it's in, great. He starts tearing it out and then taking it back, you know, <laughs> 20 kilometers to his shop. I said, what are you doing? It's fine. You can just fill it in. He says, all my life I've built good things. I'm too old to start building junk. And he, he just... And he's to make he it have, right. He, and he ate the whole thing. He, he lost all his profit, whatever wow. it would have been, on the entire house. We're doing this giant metal frame, you know. It's like, a, yeah. it's like a 15-foot long frame and an arch, you know, with windows and doors in the thing. So it was amazing, amazing. I mean I mean it almost brings tears to your eyes you know and no wonder you feel at home there you know right
0: Ference Mate shares photos of his restored friary home in Tuscany on his website, ferencmate.com, That's spelled F-E-R-E-N-C-M-A-T-E dot com. We'll make time for one more call for Ference, then we're off for Argentina to check in with Camille Cusumano. Like Ference, Camille has reinvented herself by moving overseas, in her case from California to Buenos Aires. Camille tells us why we can blame it on the tango, a sensuous dance, she says, changed her life. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In a few minutes, we're calling Camille Cusumano in Buenos Aires, Argentina to find out why she says that tango is a powerful dance that not just anybody can fully grasp, no matter how tightly your dance partner holds you. But for Camille, tango lessons changed her life, and she moved to Buenos Aires. Right now, Ferenc Maté is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a bit of a Renaissance man himself as he brings us a taste of what makes the good life so good in Tuscany. It turns out he has so many admirers, we've decided to be flexible, like a Tuscan, and make time for one more caller at 877-333-7425. We have Elena on the line in Libertyville, Illinois. Elena, thanks for your call.
3: Oh, hello, Mr. and Thank you, thank you so much. I just think maybe I'm drinking, or maybe it's for real. Thank you so much, Mr. Ferenc. This is my greatest pleasure to hear your voice. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank
1: you so much. Well, come much, to Tuscany, I'll mumble at you all day.
3: <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful chance for me. I read your books. I reread them probably twice, all about Tuscany and maybe three times. Um, probably the best, the best one for me is this wonderful book of yours with this real simple life that is my favorite. It's my favorite, favorite
0: well, Elena, tell, I, me, tell me, Elena, have you incorporated some of the inspirational ideas that Ferenc has uh, shared into your lifestyle in Illinois?
3: Sir, I, I'm trying to incorporate. It's kind of difficult. You know, probably you can guess by my accent, I'm not from here. I'm European, and I'm from experience. My mom is Hungarian. My dad is Romanian. I immigrated in the United States nine years ago. And this is my lifestyle. What I read in Mr. Hermitage's books is my lifestyle. i almost ready to cry because it's just so real. When you read his book, it's just you realize how wonderful, wonderful life can be without us being surrounded by so many machines, doing so much stuff for us and spending money on them. From this wonderful book, I read to my daughter because I want to help her to understand she grows in this United States, you know, in our Libertyville. She grows, you know, surrounded by normal people. And she tells me that, you know, we, it's normal for us to have cars, it's normal for us to have dishwashers and stuff. And I try to explain how I grew up and how wonderful life was when we would sit in the kitchen with my mom, you know, cooking for us, with our neighbors coming. Exactly like in Mr. Mathis' book, coming and chatting, just sitting there and chatting. These are my best memories, my best, best memories.
0: Elena from Libertyville, Illinois. Thank you so much. And uh,
1: Thanks, Elena. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking of the other day, too, that... Uh, the personal thing is, is is the whole foundation of society. If we, do, I mean, isn't that what the word society means? You know, and and if you exclude yeah. that and you categorize little groups and isolate us into old folks' homes and kindergartens and kitty gyms and all that stuff, yeah. uh, you're breaking up society, not creating it. You know, so I mm-hmm. think you're absolutely right. The the simple stuff will keep us together, if anything. And sure. if not, we just have enough wine to drink. <laughs> 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 I got to tell have you one, one thing.
3: Short short question, probably the last last word. I just want to ask. Mr. Ferenc, is Mr. Polucci, your neighbor, for real, a real
1: person? Oh, the realest person in my life, yeah. <laughs> Can you
3: tell him that? I love him. I will. <laughs> I love him, I'm, and I'm always laughing at all his comments, and how I'll tell him when his wife isn't there, I'll reality. tell him. <laughs> he's so right in whatever he says, and it's just he, so wonderful. He's so yeah, wonderful he's t- with t- all t- his totally real.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks for your call, Elena.
3: Thank you so much. Okay. The very best. Thank you, thank you,
0: you. Ferenc, I am just personally moved by the passion that your readers have shared in their calls here. I
1: had we get emails that you never imagined. You know that uh, that people are so so moved and we get, we get a lot of visitors from everywhere you know but I hide you know I'm so antisocial I go in the woods when people come <laughs> seriously well, you, I do you, and Candace handles the wine part but to hear them you know, it's just okay. really humbling well, right? let's
0: just wrap it up by if, if all of our listeners are dreaming about going to Tuscany uh, they can't all move in with you what's, uh, what's one little <laughs> bit of uh, advice for you where they can be touched by Tuscany not as people who are going to buy a 13th century friary and restore it But as people who just are tourists that are going to be passing through, uh, how can they be sure to get a little bit of the wisdom of Tuscany in their travels?
1: Well, I think the agriturismo are really important. And these are farms, most of them, working farms. Some of them are not, some of them are just sort of estates that take in people. Um, But the the working farms and small family estates are such a huge shock to most people. And as you said, uh, your biggest memory was going to somebody's house and eating there. you're basically visiting a family. You and can do that
0: then in an agriturismo, the farms that are yes, renting then rooms. Yes, and they usually have the you know,
1: three or four small rooms almost always with their own bathrooms. So well, a lot of them are like first-class hotels you know, in, in right. quality, and most of them fantastically clean, and, and the people are amazingly welcoming, and then you yet very good food. And I think that's the real Tuscany still. You know? yeah. it's, even that's changing, but you know, hurry up and get over there and visit. <laughs> Made to order for an open-minded American traveler that wants to connect with this wisdom of Tuscany. Absolutely, and I think you'll definitely want to move there once you want to visit. You know,
0: mm-hmm. Ferenc Mate, it's a pleasure talking with you, and best wishes with your work and uh, for all of your fans. Thank you for sharing the wisdom of Tuscany.
1: All right, that was great fun. Thanks very much. Yep. Ciao.
0: Ciao. Anywhere you travel, you've got music and dance woven into the culture, but perhaps nowhere on the planet does music and dance have more to do with the essential experience than going to Argentina and getting into the tango culture. Today we're going to talk about the tango culture in Argentina. Uh, we're joined by Camille Cusumano, who's written a book called Tango, an Argentine love story. Camille chronicles a year she spent in Buenos Aires. She was basically licking her wounds after a tough breakup with a partner and finding solace and new life down in the tango scene. This book's a spicy travel memoir of a woman who, according to the, the book, loved, lost, got mad, and decided to dance. Camille, thanks for joining us.
4: My pleasure to be here, Rick.
0: So why did you go to Argentina to get over your the grief that came with your breakup?
4: Well, tango had something to do with it. Um, it started to split us up because he didn't dance at all, and I got really into it. It's, it's very typical that... People who start dancing tango get very passionate, and it changes their lives. So um, we were having a little breather from each other, and during that time, the way I like to say it is I gave in to the temptation to practice more than tango with one of my tango partners.
0: So tango really is more than a dance. It's It's a lifestyle.
4: Yes, it does become a way of life. It's, it's a great community down here and, and actually in the big cities in the States, too.
0: I've got a number of friends that in Europe that go to, every winter they go down to Argentina just to be in the tango scene. Now, in your book, you talk about how the first step of a tango is called a salida, which actually means exit. Tell us about that.
4: Well, the salida, it means exit, but uh, the way I feel, the way I describe it is it's the, it's, it's the entrance step to tango and i think it's the right word because you're exiting real time Um, i'm not alone in saying this tango is very much like zen meditation the past and the future don't exist or don't matter and you have to be fully present to dance tango it's uh, a wordless dialogue um, between two bodies between two people
0: so you're, you're face to face, your chest to chest, leg to leg. It's it's a complete embrace. It's quite steamy physically, and at the same yeah. time, there's a there's a sort of a philosophy with it too. And you find a, a kind of a tranquility and a and a peace in in the tango.
4: Yes, and I go into some of that in my book. But as I've studied it more and more, you're actually not face to face. You're you're head to head because you. It's the one partner dance where you don't look at each other. Ah. Where you communicate through. Um, the leader gives you signals through his body. And and there are real steps. But I I think um, what makes tango so unique is the uh, very genetic material of it goes back to the lowest rungs of society invented the dance when all they wanted was to satisfy that most primal urge for love and intimacy. They were the gauchos and the immigrants.
0: Let's talk about this now in the context of travel, because uh, if you want to experience this tango scene, is it, is it fair to say Buenos Aires in Argentina is the capital of the tango culture?
4: Absolutely. Now, th-
0: Absolutely. now, this city is very inexpensive. It's got a Paris-like elegance. It's sort of a happening place now with legions of artists and creative people coming together here. It, there must be a, a heady kind of uh, ambience right now in that uh, Buenos Aires scene.
4: Yes, it's a well-kept secret. I don't think we should tell everybody. Okay,
0: just between <laughs> you and me here, yeah. Tell, <laughs> tell me more about me. what it's like to be in Buenos Aires right now.
4: I think I have that conversation uh, at least once a week, like it's the best-kept secret. It's a very stimulating city. Um, I think it's kind of a cross between New York. It's, it's an all-night city, even more so than New York. Um, it's kind of like San Francisco, which is my home base in the States because it has neighborhoods, or barrios, as they call them. Uh, And it's like Paris, because the architecture is, um, well, they wanted it to be like like France when they built the city. So there's a, a lot of wonderful Italian Renaissance and French
0: architecture. And now, as a traveler, you could just kind of look at the architecture, or you could connect with the scene, and it sounds like to get into these dance halls. What are those dance halls called? Milongas?
4: Milonga is the name of the place where tango is danced.
0: Okay, and there's, uh, is any tourist welcome to go into a milonga?
4: Absolutely, absolutely, and um, I, I'm always sorry that people feel intimidated, I, and I take a lot of non-tango people to them to show them that it's intimidating because um, it looks like people are, you know, they're they're quiet with each other when they're dancing, um, but you can sit and watch, and then you can see the whole. There's a lot of etiquette that goes on. It's it's pretty easy to get up to speed on. I go into some of it in my book.
0: Just last year, the United Nations recognized uh, tango as part of the world heritage, right? A dance.
4: Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. UNESCO protected it. Um, yes, as an important part of humanity. People ask me how do you protect a dance, and I guess the answer is by by doing it, by teaching it.
0: It's almost a way to express your Argentineness, I would imagine.
4: Sort of. It's, you know, uh, probably the same rate of people here in Argentina dance tango as in the States, but everybody in Argentina knows the music. And for a long time, tango was just music. It wasn't the dance for people.
0: Who leads in a tango, the man or the woman?
4: Well, here the man leads more, but as tango spreads around the world, women who want to lead can lead. I personally am a dedicated follower. I love the follower's role, and it's it's not as macho as you think.
0: What's the follower's role?
4: Well, we've, we're told to not anticipate, to wait for the leader to give us the cue for the move. And I like to call the leader the starter because he mm-hmm. does start the dance. He he does you know do the salida, the exit from real time, the entrance into the dance. But then so many. Um, not so many, but the really good dancers say to me sometimes, I'm following you. It becomes synergistic, I guess. It's a give hmm. and take.
0: Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Camille Cusumano, who's written a book called Tango, An Argentine Love Story. Camille's website is com. Camille, in your book, you wrote about dancing with one man, and right away, it occurred to you, he's too young and too shallow for deep tango. What did he mean by that? <laughs>
4: um he hadn't suffered enough i guess you hear this a lot um there's there're different styles of tango there's milonguero is the kind i mostly do down here nuevo tango which is characterized by more open embrace and the young people just showing off doing all the fancy
0: steps okay.
4: like you see on the show tango so you
0: wanted a tango dancer like a blues singer somebody who has a life story that can come across in their art oh.
4: I couldn't have said it better, yes.
0: So there's That's not... Beautiful, beautiful. So young is not a good thing in tango necessarily. Having lived is a good thing in tango.
4: Maybe the way I would say it is that old is a good thing in tango. The hmm. old, old guys can be so good, the old women. Yeah. There's an 80-year-old woman here that the young guys in in this one milonga on Sunday love to dance with.
0: Let's talk again about a tourist, because... It would be intimidating to me. I would go down to Argentina and go to one of these dance halls, and these people know how to dance. And I'm sure a woman tourist would be more than welcome on the dance floor, and people would put up with her relative gawkiness because, you know, women have it easy that way. Uh, what about men?
4: Uh, actually, I may have misled you if, if that, that's not true. It's better that even the woman uh, know a few steps. To it's, it's true. It's easier for the woman to follow who's not very skilled, and it is for a man who's not skilled to lead. So um, you should have some lessons before you go into milonga. And I, I guess I was saying go to the milonga to watch.
0: But you could prepare uh, for your trip if you're going to go to Argentina. It might make sense to take some tango lessons here in the United States before you fly south.
4: Yes, yes, I would recommend that. And the teacher will usually give you the etiquette, like the cabaceo, how the men, Yeah,
0: it yeah, seems like this is just steamy, sexy... Argentine culture. I mean, you write about having strangers press against your belly as you're dancing.
4: <laughs> that was that young guy who didn't know better.
0: <laughs> oh, so that's that's not a routine thing.
4: No, it's really not. There's so much mythology and um, stereotypes that don't fit. I, I,
0: okay, so I it's a genteel guess. kind of atmosphere where where it's not just going to be brash and crude and sexual.
4: No. Yes. Y- uh,
0: Because you said you had not many lovers, but thousands of partners. And each of your dances took you to a different kind of encounter. So that was really a cultural encounter and an interpersonal encounter more than a sexual thing.
4: Yes. You know, I think if people come here, they're looking for sex. If if that's all they want, they'll find it. But um, there are so many people here, it's about the dance. It's about the connection on the higher level. And it's a very refined dance now.
0: I'm talking with Camille Cusimano. She's written a book called Tango, An Argentine Love Story, giving us a guide to Argentina through, I think you could call it, its national dance. Camille, if you're a tourist and you don't know how to dance, but you're going to a dance hall, describe the experience to us. What would you do to be comfortable there?
4: So if you don't dance and you want to go to a a tango salon, you would go to watch. When you open the door, it's like opening an oven door. You feel the heat of the place. And a host or hostess who is the organizer of this milonga will seat you. And you might tell them that you don't dance, so you want to just watch, and that's perfectly acceptable. And then you want to be careful where you put your eyes, because if you're a woman, the men will look at you and and kind of um, raise their eyebrows or do a little head nod, which means do you want to dance? And they expect you to meet them on the dance floor. And women can do it to men. It's, it's pretty equal now. Women invite men the same way. So keep moving your eyes around, look at the floor, look up. Um,
0: unless you see it, somebody who you want to uh, be asked to dance with.
4: Unless you want to dance, yes, yes. If you're, if you're a dancer and you want to give it a try, um, do look at the men uh, or the women and you know, do the eye lock. You, you'll know when it happens. Is a
0: woman as likely to ask a, a wallflower man to dance? Is that likely to happen?
4: I would say yes. Um, I, generally, women like to wait for the men in this culture but then, you know, there's so many foreigners and they know the foreigners play by different rules. Okay,
0: so the tourist is more than welcome and you can uh, learn a little bit about it and find yourself swept away in the tango scene in Argentina.
4: Totally, absolutely.
0: Camille, one last uh, tip for any American who's pondering going to Argentina and uh, making the tango scene as you have.
4: Definitely don't be intimidated by trying tango. Just get a lesson or two from a teacher you feel comfortable with and give it a try. It's, It'll change
0: your life. It'll change your life. I keep hearing that about tango. Tell me how.
4: Well, I mean, uh, you've left
0: your life and started a new life in Argentina. This this is a powerful thing. How does it change your life?
4: It uh, gave me an incredible self-confidence. I, I found the center of the universe and the center of myself, and I feel very connected to people in a way that uh, exterior... Things may not have changed, but I can I can take anything. Learning to live in the moment is what it really gave me. More so than even meditation, which I had done for years.
0: Camille Cusumano, author of Tango, an Argentine Love Story. Thanks for teaching us a little bit about Latin America.
4: Thanks for having me, Rick. My pleasure.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for engineering help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. La vita Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through
0: Italy and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Venice, Florence, and Rome, the heart of Italy, Village Italy, South Italy, and Sicily. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.